Hello, and welcome again to the Conservative Historian Podcast. The title of this, David Brooks and the American Family, date May 2020. In an essay published on March 15, 2020, for The Atlantic, entitled The End of the Nuclear Family, David Brooks provides a number of theories in regard to this vital societal structure. There is much in the essay to recommend itself. There are also points that do not hold up very well to scrutiny. One of Brooks's first conjectures is, quote, Over the past century, we've made life better for adults, but worse for children, unquote. Really? According to the National Institutes of Health, quote, in 1900, 30% of all deaths in the United States occurred in children less than five years of age, compared to just 1.4% in 1990, unquote. In 1900, there were no dishwashers, no laundry machines, no vacuum cleaners, no electrical appliances, no refrigeration, no microwaves, and in many cases, no electricity itself, which made home upkeep a never-ending, all-day ordeal, and the children were very much expected to participate. House upkeep was just one of their many activities. Children on farms were expected to pitch in as well, and prior to child labor laws, they were actually employed in factories and even mines. The newsletter Children's Lives at the Turn of the 20th Century states, Quote, students today would be surprised at the sparseness of the classroom 100 years ago. There were many fewer books and what we today consider school supplies rather than markers, scissors, glue, sticks, paper, computers, and more. Students in the early 20th century probably only had a slate and chalk. Discipline could be rather strict and learning was frequently by rote memorization. There was also no school lunch program. Instead, students carried their lunch to school, often in a metal pail, unquote. In almost every material way imaginable, children are better off than they were a 100 years ago. And let me emphasize that, material way imaginable. This is not to say that society has not changed. Brooks's history and strong in showing the family at one point looked more like a clan than the nuclear family we would envision in 2020. Quote, we've moved from big, interconnected, and extended families, which help protect the most vulnerable people in society from the shocks of life, to smaller, detached nuclear families, a married couple and their children, which give the most privileged people in society room to maximize their talents and expand their options. The shift from bigger and interconnected extended families to smaller and detached nuclear families ultimately led to a familial system that liberates the rich and ravages the working class and the poor, unquote. And within that context, you get a little bit of an idea of what Brooks is really getting at. But further on, we're going to provide a slightly different look on that. Brooks notes that the rise of the nuclear family in place of a more clannish structure in the post-war years. Quote, Finally, conditions in the wider side were ideal for family stability. The post-war period, that period after 1950, 
was a high-water mark of church attendance, unionization, social trust, and mass prosperity, all things that correlate with family cohesion. A man could relatively easily find a job that would allow him to be the breadwinner for a single-income family. By 1961, the median American man aged 25 to 29 was earning nearly 400% more than his father had earned at about the same age, unquote. But here, Brooks errs by making the statement that, quote, in short, the period from 1950 to 1965 demonstrated that a stable society can be built around nuclear families so long as women are relegated to the household, unquote. Brooks is mistaken in thinking that the existence of a typical family, a nuclear family, is predicated on a stay-at-home spouse. A nuclear family can survive with both parents working, but that is really the key, both parents, not whether one is home or one is working or whatever sort of gender descriptions that entails. The real predicate here and the thing to keep in mind is two parents. Per the disintegration of the nuclear family, Brooks looks to everything from declining wages to a baby boomer ethos of liberation, even citing popular music. Here, Brooks errs again by missing one crucial point by consigning the focus of marriage to child rearing. Quote, Eli Finkel, a psychologist and marriage scholar at Northwestern University, has argued that since the 1960s, the dominant culture has been the self-expressive marriage. Americans, Finkel has written, now look to marriage increasingly for self-discovery, self-esteem, and personal growth. Marriage according to the sociologists Catherine Eden and Mara and Maria Kafalis, is no longer primarily about childbearing and child-rearing. Now marriage is primarily about adult fulfillment. So Finkel's contention is essentially that it is now about self-actualization in some sort of Maslowian hierarchy, but it used to be about childbearing and child-rearing. Marriage itself is not exactly a new institution. In Elizabeth Meyer Tetlow's Women, Crime, and Punishment in Ancient Law and Society, the author describes the laws governing marriage from Euro Ingmagina, a Sumerian king who ruled in the 24th century BCE. Quote, when a woman and man loved each other, they should live together, unquote. Though the rituals and the words have changed, the concept was still the same almost 4,500 years ago. Marriage is an institutional way to channel the natural sex drive and keep civilization somewhat in check by focusing young people's energies. This is something the ancients knew all too well. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, it takes poor Shamhead a full week of lovemaking to tame the wild Enkidu. But marriage is also about economics and time. And this is again where two parents, and note I'm saying parents, I'm not saying a man and a woman here, I am saying two parents, are better than one. That same Sumerian king who spoke about marriage also speaks about the concept of possessions. Quote, her field and well become his field and well, unquote. That is arguably one of the salient points about society. There have been two reasons why traditional divorce rates have been low. The first is lifespan. The constant toil for survival left little time for pre-1850 humans 
to, quote, find themselves, unquote. Additionally, when the average lifespan is 50 years, there's also the little time for love to die. A spouse was there for daily toil and occasional pleasure, not for internal fulfillment. The other reason divorce rates were typically lower was economic necessity. Again, getting back to that concept, not just of child rearing, not just of the sort of pleasurable experiences that occur when young people get together. We are talking economics here. And here is the great challenge for our American society today. Quote, well, more than four-fifths of American adults in a 2019 Pew Research Center survey said that getting married is not essential to living a fulfilling life. It's not just the institution of marriage they're issuing. In 2004, 33% of Americans ages 18 to 34 were living without a romantic partner. According to General Social Survey, by 2018, that number was up to 51%, unquote. Brooks writes. It is at this point that Brooks and so many sociologists and so many other economists and so many other historians go off the rails. Quote, finally, over the past two generations, families have grown more unequal. America now has two entirely different family regimes. Among the highly educated, family patterns are almost as stable as they were in the 1950s. Among the less fortunate, Family life is often utter chaos. There's a reason for that divide. Affluent people have the resources to effectively buy extended family in order to shore themselves up, unquote. And Brooks goes on to name the dreaded conservatives. And Brooks goes on to name the dreaded conservatives, an ideology he used to purport. Quote, affluent conservatives often pat themselves on the back for having stable nuclear families. They preach that everybody else should build stable families too, but then they ignore one of the main reasons their own families are stable. They can afford to purchase the support that extended family used to provide, and that the people they preach at further down the income scale cannot. So why am I saying that Brooks goes off the rails here? Fundamentally, he is correct in that there is a two uh, style regime in the United States today. Strong nuclear families who are affluent and those who are not affluent and kind of diverging paths. But to blame the fact that marriage somehow is of affluence. In other words, Brooks' contention is, is primarily that rich people are together and that they marry each other and thus create nuclear families and that their wealth then uh, keeps those families going. This is akin to saying New York does not need stop and frisk because crime is down. Rather, crime is down because of stop and frisk. Conservatives favor two-person households because that provides the means for affording additional help, not the other way around. Two people paying a single rent, sharing household duties, and often producing two incomes is going to out-earn the single-parent household. And as much as progressives like to equate marriage to some sort of past cultural norm, marriage is less about culture than it is about economics. This is why everyone, from the Sumerians to 1950s Americans, got married. Here is another case of Brooks confusing the cause and effect. Quote, 
People who don't have prosperous careers have trouble building stable families because of financial challenges and other stressors. The children in those families become more isolated and more traumatized. Unquote. Again, it is the other way around. People with a spouse can afford to put in the necessary time to build a prosperous career. And note that the argument for two-person parental structure does not necessarily, and this is clear, does not necessarily have to be a man or a woman. Whether it is two men, two women, or a man and a woman, two is better than one. Let me reemphasize that concept. Two parents are better than one. At what point did Americans feel they could do without marriage? Brooks comments that, quote, over the past 50 years, federal and state governments have tried to mitigate the deleterious effects of these trends, unquote. But once again, it is the other way around. Is it a coincidence that many of these trends began in the era immediately succeeding the passage of much of the great society programs? Everything from education to healthcare to school lunches are now the purview of the government. In 2012, the Obama campaign ran an ad called Julia's World. That existed as a promoter of all of the government largesse available to Americans, courtesy of the progressives, courtesy of people like Barack Obama. I would provide my own quote here, but it is almost impossible to come up with something better or superior than Charles Krauthammer. And Krauthammer noted in 2012, quote, Julia's world is an Obama campaign creation that may be the most self-revealing parody of liberalism ever conceived. It's a series of cartoon illustrations in which a fictional Julia is swaddled and subsidized throughout her life by an all-giving government of bottomless pockets and queen-for-a-day magnanimity. At every stage, the state is there to provide. Preschool classes and cut-rate college loans, birth control and maternity care, business loans and retirement. The only time she's on her own is at her gravesite. Julia's world is totally atomized. It contains no friends, no community, and of course, no spouse. Who needs one? She's married to the provider state, unquote. In his 8,000-word essay, Brooks never once, never once mentions the correlation of the growth of the state and the deterioration of a marriage and growth of single-parent households, and subsequently, the divide between two-person income households and single-person income households that has been perpetuated since at least the 1970s. People who grow up in two-parent households are likely to marry and stay married by a significant margin over those who grow up in a single-parent home. They see firsthand the advantages and they replicate. That is why Andrew Sherlin was correct when he stated that, quote, it is the privileged Americans who are marrying, and marrying helps them stay privileged. One book that Brooks does not cite, perhaps to spare the readers of the Atlantic from too much contrarianism, is Charles Murray's Coming Apart. Because of the racial controversies from his previous work, The Bell Curve, Murray used only white families for his comparisons and found out that, quote, 
Family structure that produces the best outcomes for children, on average, are two biological parents who remain married. Divorced parents produce the next best outcomes. Whether the parents remarry or remain single while the children are growing up makes little difference. Never married women produce the worst outcomes. Let me repeat that one. Never married women produce the worst outcomes. All of these statements apply after controlling for the family's socioeconomic status. I know of no other set of important findings that are as broadly accepted by social scientists who follow the technical literature, liberal as well as conservatives, and yet are so resolutely ignored by network news programs, editorial writers for the major newspapers, and politicians of both political parties, unquote. The other piece that Brooks fails to mention is lifespan. When the average lifespan was 50, the concept of the extended family looks very different. Up until death, grandma and grandpa were expected to deliver their fair share, including helping out with the child rearing. With the advent of Medicare and Social Security, which now account for nearly 40% of all federal outlays, 50-year retirements are not an exception. They are considered the normal and entitlement and often, with the growth of southern communities such as Del Webb, Saddlebrook, and some of the communities around Orlando, the grandparents are not even in physical proximity to their children or grandchildren. Towards the end of his essay, Brooks celebrated the extension of the black family, but the numbers belie the traditional concept of family. Two-thirds of African-American children live in single-parent families in 2018, compared with a quarter of white children. But this was not always the case. In research by John Iceland, a professor of sociology and demography at Penn State, suggests that the differences between white and black family structure explain 30% of the affluence gap between the two groups. According to a study entitled African-American Marriage Patterns, conducted by Douglas Besheroff and Andrew West, quote, In the 1950s, after at least 70 years of rough parity, African-American marriage rates began to fall behind white rates. In 1950, the percentages of white and African-American women aged 15 and over who were currently married were roughly the same. 67% and 64% respectively. By 1998, the percentage of currently married white women had dropped by 13% to 58%. But the drop among African-American women was 44% to 36%, more than three times larger. The declines for males were parallel, 12% for white men, 36% for African-American men. One explanation for the dichotomy is called the Wilson Hypothesis. In 2019, a piece in Vox entitled Incarceration, Unemployment, and the Black-White Marriage Gap in the U.S., written by Elizabeth Cowcutt, Neja Gunner, Christopher Rao, stated, quote, Why do black individuals marry at lower rates than white individuals? Wilson suggests the characteristics of the black male population, and in particularly, the lack of marriageable black men due to high rates of unemployment and incarceration are an important factor contributing to the black-white differences in marital status, unquote. However, a counter-argument 
to the Wilson hypothesis is presented by Robert D. Mayer and Christopher Winship, who, quote, have estimated that at most 20% of the decline in marriage rates of blacks between 1960 and 1980 can be explained by decreasing employment. And Robert G. Wood has estimated that only 3 to 4% of the decline in marriage rates can be explained by the shrinking of the pool of eligible black men. And yet, neither of these theories work. Rates of single-parent households are on the increase in both white and Latino populations, despite lower incarceration rates. When affluency is taken into account, the rates between the races begin to converge. The decline in marriage is not due to race, but rather the economics inherent in a two-person household, something wealthy progressives intuitively understand. And with the exception of a few short periods, such as 2008 to 2010, unemployment rates have been below 6%. This is too low to fully account for the single-parent growth rates. This is not to say that one should marry just to avoid economic challenge. But what is more plausible, that a loving, mutually beneficial relationship arises out of a strong economic situation, or that an economic challenge deteriorates caring and affection. At least Brooks properly calls out the hypocrisy at the center of white progressives. Quote, progressives, meanwhile, still talk like self-expressive individualists of the 1970s. People should have the freedom to pick whatever family form works for them. And of course, according to Brooks, they should. But many of the new family forms do not work well for most people. And while progressive elites say that all family structures are fine, their own behavior suggests that they believe otherwise, unquote, because affluent white liberals are married at higher rates. But again, the affluency comes out of the marriage, not the other way around. In many regards, this gets to the core of the conservative argument. Highly educated progressives intuitively understand the very thing they diminish with their pro-government, non-familial definitions. Quote, as the sociologist W. Bradford Wilcox has pointed out, highly educated progressives may talk a tolerant game on family structure when speaking about society at large, but they have extremely strict expectations for their own families. When Wilcox asked his University of Virginia students if they thought having a child out of wedlock was wrong, 62% said it was not wrong. Oh, there you go. When he asked the students how their own parents would feel if they themselves had a child out of wedlock, 97% said their parents would, quote, freak out, unquote. Marriage is not just the center of the family. It's the center of a successful life. Thank you.